A quote from Ten Days in the Madhouse by Nellie Bly. From the moment I entered the insane ward on the island, I made no attempt to keep up the assumed role of insanity. I talked and acted just as I do in ordinary life. Yet strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be by all. The insane asylum is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. Hello and welcome back. This is Shanna, your hostess. I'm PJ. I'm Laura. I'm Ray. Hi, I'm Dan. Got a full house tonight. Um, really quickly, before we even begin our work tonight, I just want to say listener discretion advised. We are discussing Penhurst, and we've all decided that we want to do justice to this in the most eloquently understanding way possible. So we are going to discuss everything about Penhurst, the nitty and the gritty and the real. So if you have any past experiences that might bring up some trauma, I would suggest that you listen with caution. Or if you just don't like gross topics and th- like and people being mistreated and things like that, uh, you know, just be forewarned. Yep. Yeah. Difficult, you know, torture like in yes. many cases. Well, you know, yeah. I don't think it's just, but anything that involves you, you know, violence against children, I think, is a very hard thing, very unpalatable. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, listener beware. And for me, um, this one, I, I had thought about not doing it for a long time because, you know, Hillview Manor was a place really for the aged and the poor. So it was easier to do that story. But Penhurst itself, you know, you think about what happened there and how it's now used as an attraction over Halloween. And that just really hurts my soul. Uh, it just really hits me because there are unmarked graves all over Penhurst from people who died there, the children who were incinerated there. And now they, you know, have the Penhurst, you know, Halloween tour, you know, every every year. It just it makes me sick. So I think we need to do justice to this story and be as honest as possible. Agreed? Agreed. Yep. Let's do it. So no funny jokes from you, Dan. <laughs> You know what's going to happen. <laughs> so to start off, does anybody want to give a background on Penhurst? We all did our own research. I have, pay- I am prepared. I put a picture on Facebook to our, our Games for Board page of me, like, organizing my content. Um, so I do have an intro, but if anyone else has a really good paragraph that goes over the background a little bit, you can go ahead and read it. I don't want to take away anything. Please, but- Dr. Hayden, feel free. <laughs> I'll give a little bit of a history with regard to um, Penhurst State School, which actually was originally known as the Eastern Pennsylvania State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. Um, And this opened its doors in 1908, the fall of 1908. Um, It was located in Spring City, and for those who aren't familiar with Pennsylvania. That's southeast Pennsylvania, so Mm -hmm. not far actually from the Philadelphia region. Um, And like I said before, it opened in 1908, November of 1908 to be precise. Um, But funnily, you know what? It didn't just 
accept mentally and physically handicapped folks, believe it or not. Back in the day, um, they got a lot of pressure from the state to accept others, immigrants, criminals, Mm -hmm. orphans. Essentially, they're looking at people that couldn't be housed elsewhere. They found their residence, in a manner of speaking, at Penhurst. So it was a whole bunch of people, and sometimes I couldn't help but think that Laura's original initial quote resonates so profoundly, because it wasn't just all crazy people, or it wasn't people who, you know, suffered from mental illness. You know, and to add to that, um, if you go on to preservepenhurst.org, they have a fantastic repertoire of what Penhurst was and everything about it. So it's not just coming from the, you know, the scary story attraction that the people uh, have now. But it was once seen as like this model institution coming out of the 1820s, 1800s. Um, What happened is a man with the last name Howe came after a vacation in Germany and he saw this brand new way to help those who are feeble-minded, you know, or have epilepsy. And so he's the one who like brought back this idea of institutions. Before that, these didn't really exist in America, but they became humongous because it was easier to kind of put the problematic people of our society in one location and kind of shut the door and pretend they didn't exist. And that's what kind of sickens me a whole bunch because you have these people labeled as defective or again, the title for their original place was feeble minded, which is disgusting. But you hear words like retarded and morons and imbeciles. Those were common words to use to describe them. Their official diagnoses. Yep. But those words were, you know, categorically the word that we use, 1800s, 1900s. We had a student at one of my schools who still had a label of MR, which is mental retardation. And we're not supposed to use that term anymore. But that's how, like, modern modern it still is to think that it was being used even in the early 2000s. Well, it shocked me to even think that back then the word moron was thrown around as like a legit condition yeah yeah, that was a legit medical term yes and i i do think we should just make a note to listeners too that we probably will be saying or referencing those words in context with the time we're going to talk about park and that was the pennsylvania association for retarded i mean the word retarded was in park you know it's like that's just like it throws me off and when my students use the word retard i'm like no 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 you're not in this house well yeah it has a completely different Meaning connotation now, where back then it was just a a word for a diagnosis, you know? And My brothers used the word moron all the time, and I didn't realize what it meant until I was in college, actually. Yeah, because to retard something is to slow it down, and so they just said mental retardation, you know? And so it makes sense, but now in today's society, because it's been used so negatively for so long. That's the thing, because when this was being thrown around, when this word was originally being used, it was actually used to describe dictionarily speaking this is the meaning yeah. this is what's going on whereas today uh, it's been thrown out of context yeah now it's a, a derogatory lot of things yeah. are thrown out mm-hmm. of context and be taken taken derogatory but i'll get on that subject a lot later <laughs> if ever. um but, uh, go ahead so the thing that that i found interesting while reading through a lot of this stuff that you actually sent me pj was um this one quote here that actually came from the chief physician Oh, yeah. And the one thing that really stuck out to me was he is taking these conditions that they're describing and he's putting them, he's associating them with criminal uh, mindsets and criminal activity. That was my fifth point. Fun fact. That's your fifth point? 
Well, I'm sorry, I stole your <laughs> no, thunder. you can read it because I was going to read it. Go ahead. Oh, you were going to read it. I got it right here. Okay. Which, and, and he goes on to say that every feeble-minded person is a potential criminal. Yikes. Wow. Okay, first, yeah. and this isn't, that's, that's just like literally the first that's sentence the first of the quote. That's the first line. <laughs> yeah. yep. That was their chief physician saying that. Yeah, the general public, although more convinced today than ever before that it is a good thing to segregate the idiot or the distinct imbecile, they have not yet been convinced as to the proper treatment of the deficit delinquent, which is the brighter and more dangerous individual. And added on to that is the discussion about pulling them away on purpose because they don't want them intermingling. Right, right. That was something that I got later into the the article. And I find that, wow, uh, we're talking about stuff that we will come into contact with much later um, in in world politics with... Eugenics. Eugenics and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's ridiculous yeah. when you look at it as like, well, this is this is somebody who may not be as smart as somebody who has a PhD. And that person is now being looked down upon as stupid, as an, an mm-hmm. idiot. And suddenly it's, well, you can be a criminal someday. So let's curtail that before it ever you know gets to that point. Yeah, so uh, to add on to your comment there, the commission also strongly believe that the intermixing of genes of the general population with those imprisoned would be detrimental to society. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so when you were put into an insane asylum, you were almost immediately sterilized. So Yeah, uh, well, not immediate sterilization. They did, uh, they did segregation mm-hmm. first, yep. uh, so they could not have relations. anything, any relations, anything that could... Uh, be bore out of two people going, Hey, you're cute. Uh, and it's just ridiculous to think that they kept pushing it further and further. But until, even yeah, the, it did in the 1800s and 1900s, a lot of the original like psychology textbooks had eugenics trees and would say, like, You don't want to have these people in your society because it could be something that you know is distinctive to their gene pool and they're going to continue it on into humankind. So we need to stop that. And so, um, we were watching this movie on Amazon, which is is just simply called Penhurst. It's really good. So it's a modern take. Um, so it's not just the suffer the little children. It looks at everything in context, and it's, so it's very unbiased. It shows both sides of the story. For listeners, suffer the little children is a documentary that was done in the sixties. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's an expose, really. Yeah, 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 yeah not a documentary. Um, it was, yeah. a, it was well, a five-part series, right? Yeah, it was and five-part sh- mm-hmm. series. Yeah, Short five, segments, yeah. five minutes, yeah. ten minutes each. But the last yeah. one they got the vice president on, so yeah, yeah. Bill Baldini did a good job. Oh, um, yeah. But it, that was... Later, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, that later. <laughs> but um, for what I was going to say now, because we went on to that. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, so but on so on the, the Penhurst movie, um, they actually, the people who were on there were talking about how in their original like psych textbooks, they were being taught like uh, the origination of our degree was really eugenics and evolutionary theory. And it's horrifying to think that that is what was pervasive then through the 1960s and 70s because Penhurst, you're going to learn later, did not shut down until 1987, almost exactly 20 years after the expose. Yeah. Yeah. Little children. I think it was in litigation for all it those was. 20 years. It was in litigation. Mm-hmm. But I mean, how, yeah. how awful is that, that 
everyone knew that this was happening and it just kept happening for yeah. 20 and years. That's another thing that they talk about is everybody knew that that stuff was happening even, even before, before it, the expose yep. and it's something that they just continued because they thought that they were helping. Well, I think we're going to discuss just the, the, the mindsets and the viewpoints because if you watch Penhurst on Amazon, you get, again, that unbiased point of view. You have people who are higher special needs who are living at Penhurst and they miss being there because they were in the good wards. Mm-hmm. And then you have parents who I'm not sure if they're lying to themselves or if they were just I'd use the word lucky but lucky that their kids were in the good wards and so they have only fond memories of Penhurst so you have those sides too and so there was good that came out of Penhurst so I I do want to again I want to do this justifiably where we get both sides Mm -hmm. of the story Um, so there was a lot of bad but I think there was some good too and that was mentioned in the preservepenhorse.org article because it says Penhurst largely untold stories of deep compassion and great character evidence a rise of kind conscience that inspires yet today one Penhurst staff member recalls how she and others would volunteer their time on Saturdays and Sundays to clean their residents, many of whom could not toilet themselves, since the state budget did not allocate for housekeeping services on weekends. Another describes sharing holidays at her home with Penhurst residents whose own families had long since stopped visiting. And so you have this like kind compassion from some of these um, the resident workers who were there, the nurses, for example, and two of them are actually in the um, the movie and they, mm-hmm. they're very honest with what they saw, but they also said, like, you know, I missed my job there because I felt like I was doing a lot of good. And mm-hmm. so you have the good apples and the bad apples, you know. So I just want to point out there's goods and bads to all of this. Yeah, there was one who pointed out a lot of the bad things, but they're like, but at least they had somewhere to be. So yeah. that's something, you know, like. Right, instead we of couldn't, derelict. Yeah, yeah, like we couldn't help them as best as we should have, but at least we, you know, gave them something and it's. So I don't know, I don't know how that, like, to react and process that. Here's another question, though. I can't help but think, why were there no whistleblowers? I think it was the time period. Yeah, Yeah, but even then, I mean, this, until the expose, you're right, to your point, this has been happening for years. Maybe I understand in, like, 1913, because, you know, it's, I mean, no, I don't understand completely when you get right down to it. But, you know, that was kind of like the way things were so a lot of a lot of the patients besides um what we've already talked about they also brought in a lot of immigrants and you got to remember that this is 1913 this is an america that is an isolationist mm-hmm. country still sure uh, well and so i understand like why you right. know 1913 so, but like 10 years after ten that years 10 after years that. after that 10 years after that 10 well, years after by that. the time you hit the 50s yes right right i think a part of it too is um the whole ignorance is bliss, and yep. if I don't mm-hmm. see that it's not there, like right, right now there are concentration camps in China. The new Disney live-action Mulan was shot a couple miles away from one, but no one cares about that because no one's ever seen it. You know, like we right. know it's there, but they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, right. that's not public but knowledge if or whatever. Shows me a picture of right. see with my own two it's eyes. True. And it's... if if you do watch the Penhurst movie, um, scheduled visits were scheduled visits so they actually tell you in the video that they actually had like a linen closet for clothes they put on the patients when they knew that family was coming to visit mm-hmm. and so most of the time those patients were basically naked or wearing diapers but when it was visitation day they were all scrubbed down clean and they were wearing nice clothes and the wards were cleaned out on purpose so the parents thought their kids were getting the best care possible there so was I one can... oh, i'm go. sorry and th- even then i can understand why parents and visitors might not have understood you know i think what's so hard to um 
to fathom is why there was nobody internal to the operation, you know, that was really, yeah. after years, decades, really. Outraged by outraged what they're seeing And, and just day. had, like, enough, you know? Well, I think they were also paid very well because um, also in the Pennhurst video, and it's mentioned in one of the articles, too, um, when you have, like, 200 million dollars being spent or whatever annually on this place they said 80 percent of that went to staff salary mm. with that overhead yeah right but, and that would explain a lot because they had how many acres was it 210 no way more than that 633 600, acres okay wow so you have all that acreage you don't have enough space in the asylum itself because everybody is literally being packed in yeah um mm-hmm. in cages and everything and of course this is stuff that we'll see again I mean, just as far back as five, ten years ago, with stuff that shouldn't have happened to begin with and shouldn't still be happening, yeah. which it still is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have all that space, and that money has to be going somewhere, like the staff. Otherwise, it, it could have been going to other good uses. And I think they, they felt they were, they're the doing their job, too. You know, again, even in the <clears throat> 60s, the term imbecile and insane, those were like actual diagnoses. Yeah. So oh, yeah. they were trained to believe this was correct. And they were coming out of college believing this was the best way to treat these people. <laughs> Institutions but, like college. I but like weird. New, I love weird New Jersey because they're so smart sometimes, like the weird Pennsylvania, too. But if you go on their website, they actually said under the classification of mental prowess, one was listed either as an imbecile or insane those are the two diagnoses you mm-hmm. got in, back in the day and then physically either you were epileptic or healthy so epileptic did not mean what it means today it, it kind of covered so much more which right. is crazy to think about but again when you talk about um just the area dan like you mentioned that 633 acres of area that place was meant to be its own powerhouse. You know, they, they really were kind of set off in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. They grew exactly. their own food. Yeah. They had their own yeah, they um, power. power plant. Yeah. They had their own grounds they, police. Even placed. they had um, access to the rail, railroad, railroad too. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were basically a self-sufficient, self-sufficient yeah. uh, you know, kind of like a kingdom almost yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll throw out there too. I mean, even modern day. If you see any footage of, like, modern-day slaughterhouses or things like that, the conditions are horrific, mm-hmm. completely horrific. Um, and you kind of wonder, like, how who could work there, you know? Like, mm-hmm. how do they do that? And I think there is some element of duty, you know, that they think – that they are doing something for society, you know? Like, right. And, and, and also, a, I think you probably get used to it. You become a little apathetic. That's, that's yeah. also a different mindset, which I'm sure a mindset that – I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth by saying this, but I'm sure there are some people that saw them just as, well, animals. Sure, when yeah. you'd see a slaughterhouse, it's an animal. It's a job. Just yeah. get it done with, you know, it's doing good for society, it's doing good for the rest well, of, you know, Maybe the it's also like exhaustion, you know, maybe you just clean up that floor and now you have, you know, patient number five pooping and peeing all over it again, and you just cleaned it up. Like, how, at some point, you just kind of shut yourself down, and you're just exhausted, it's a job. Yeah, sounds you know? like working in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. They're animals. <laughs> Some of them are. <laughs> Literally, dogs everywhere. My gosh. Oh, you accept pets? No, we don't. Oh. <laughs> but they're there. Doesn't stop them. Exactly. Yeah. 
But something that Weird New Jersey said that kind of stuck out to me, and it kind of just, it's it's so offensive. The facility could operate without any interaction with the surrounding community, and that was the way the community preferred it. And so there was that ignorance is bliss. And if you watch the Penhurst movie especially, there is a discussion about one guy who's going through all the archives and paperwork, and he found that this one child was sent there. I mean, he was young, and it was like 20 years later, and I'm, I hope I got that right. But they're looking over his casework, and he was originally dropped off by his dad because he had developmental delays as a toddler. He was saying poon instead of spoon. Oh. Yeah. And so the dad marked him as being an imbecile and having like epilepsy or whatever. And off he goes into this this place. So it became a dumping ground for some in some ways, too. But if you if you listen to the nurses, too, and they tell their story when it was first opened, it was it ran the way it's supposed to. It's just like Hillview Manor, where it was meant to have X amount of people. But within a couple of years, it was overcrowded. Right. And it was because they were bringing in busloads of criminals from Philadelphia and surrounding areas. And the nurse was like, whenever I saw those buses, I would just take a deep breath and know it was not going to be my day because they'd bring in these people in shackles. And they said those are the people who are causing issues because they knew that they were smarter than these people who had developmental disabilities and they were bullies. They would beat people up. Sure. So, I mean, it's just sad to think that when you, you shouldn't mix those two people together. And I think you said it really well um, on that Hillview Manor um, episode, PJ, like when you're at the lowest point that you are in, like when you're really like down, you're lucky, you're poor, you shouldn't be in a place where someone's screaming nonstop because they're schizophrenic. Yeah. But that's how they were treated. They were just kind of all shoved in one location together. Like, how do you deal? I think it's an environment. Um, and actually, Nellie Bly says this in her book as well. Um, I, I could find the quote, but basically because of the treatment uh, that it and the the atmosphere and the circumstances that if you went were sane going in it drove you crazy mm-hmm. to be there mm-hmm. and yeah it's disturbing well that's even what they said uh making the expose suffer little children is they oh. lost cameramen mic people uh because they're just like i can't go back in there well you know the host of it couldn't present the final episode because the it was described as exhaustion it sounds like he had a nervous breakdown yeah yeah uh when he originally went in he thought he was going to do this expose that would have been a one and done thing and as they were there he said it was way too much for anyone to take in he was Mm -hmm. honestly thinking of canceling everything so he could like get his crew not you know just saving his crew from everything that they were going to go through um and when you think about it like these are people that cover some of the most horrific things that you'll see on a daily basis sure wars and, and yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and they go into this and they're breaking you yeah. know just like that and that's got to tell you something yeah again when you're separated from from society it's easy to ignore it yeah. and so we can point fingers at you know the nazis and say well how do those people over in auschwitz not know what was happening in that you know camp well that's the thing you're it's happening you're, here yeah exactly you're seeing the same thing happening it's a concentration in this, camp that's what it is you're concentrating in, in, in people this, the same way that you were seeing the same thing that happened with the japanese concentration mm-hmm. camps here in america we called them internment camps it's here the same it's the exact thing. same thing yep uh, but you'll see that everywhere, and you'll see the same thing with 
Guantanamo Bay. It's the same well, exact thing. More than that, today in America, there are prisoners sitting in prison cells that have no windows. Right. Yep. You know, yeah. there are people in solitary confinement for years at a time. Yeah, there were the, the West Memphis Three who were on death row for years and then finally found not guilty through DNA evidence and everything. And when they were released, they were... I want to say they were legally blind or close to it because yeah. the closest thing, like the farthest that they could physically see in their cell was the wall three feet away from them. So their right. eyes just they lost adapted. all all of its strength. Right. They they didn't need to be worked out. I should say maladapted. But. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like we, we and I'm guilty of this, too. I think all of us are that it's, you know, if it's not in front of you, if it's not something you're actively thinking about, it's it's easy, you know, like it's right. easy to put these difficult situations that you don't want to think about from your mind yep. well it's called your dunbar right the dunbar like, level yeah <laughs> you yeah. only have some things you can worry about at a time yeah the human can only ha- they only have a capacity for seven seven things to care about at a time and that's your dunbar level after that uh you you rearrange those priorities to remove one thing and put another oh. thing into those seven. Mine must have dropped really, really low. <laughs> I find myself saying... All right, saying, there are some outliers. But. <laughs> I find myself saying, my Dunbar's full. And I like walk away from situations. My students go, what? I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> but it's a, it's a coping mechanism that we've mm-hmm. developed. Because mm-hmm. we everyone would just go insane, I think. If, yeah. you know, like, if you cared about everything that you read, so you just... You learn to prioritize what, you know, since we don't have a family member or anything who is in a situation like that, it's not part of our Dunbar, where it might be for some of our listeners and right. things it's like that. It's not constantly weighing on your mind. Yeah. Well, and again, if you've been conditioned for over 100 years, so 1820s, it's now 1920s, 1930s. If you've been conditioned to believe that these people are on the outskirts of society, they should not be with us because of eugenics. They're safer in these different locations. You have what happens then from the 1920s on. And it's that ignorance is bliss, but what's happening is best. And then you allow the government to experiment on them, you know. And we had mentioned that on past episodes, too. So what you have, then, is the next hundred years is us believing this stuff. And so we allow this to continue. And if we were to point our fingers at it and say, how do we fix it? Well, now we have to fix it. And no one really had an answer. Right. And so that becomes because it's going to take taxes. It's going to take, you know, qualified personnel. It's going to take more science. Because even today, as they mentioned, even in the Penhurst movie, you see it um, in these articles, too. We still don't know the best way to treat the mm-hmm. hardest patients. Yeah. You know, we're still learning. Right. And a lot of that is stuff that's going to change on a person to person basis. What works for one person does not work for the others. And it doesn't mean that that's the hardest case. I mean, you could do, you could have two cases that are the most ridiculous thing you'll ever come across, mm-hmm. but you're going to have vastly different approaches to both of them to, to make it work properly. Yep. And the thing is, uh, even with today, especially in the United States, well, mainly in the United States, is mental health is still, even after everything we know and everything that we've been doing, is still pushed to the wayside. It's taboo. Mm -hmm. It it is taboo. I think it's becoming less taboo now, though. Yeah, after COVID. Yeah, Yeah, we have to to admit, yeah. Um, So, like, we as teachers, I actually get training, and we we can choose to take even heavier training. So I have my youth certification crisis i'm not sure there's a lot of acronyms out there but i had to go through this very long training and so i can actually help children now who Mm -hmm. have um, mental health issues you know the disturbing thing to me though is not just at this asylum but at really all of the asylums how many people weren't mentally ill that were there and it's like if you would like 
just let those people go live their lives. You know, the people who, you know, maybe were anxious or mm-hmm. couldn't say the word spoon properly or whatever. Then you'd maybe have more time and resources for the people who actually need help. Right. You know, and but- this kind of like you put in modern day context. I think about Eli who had speech impediments. Like, he could have been in one of these. Imagine my poor little Eli in that institution. I was just watching a video. It was posted. We put it on Facebook a couple years ago when we had that big snowstorm. And he's saying, I want to ride with Hohi. Because he wants to ride on the on the sled with Sophie. And I'm like, listen to that. This when you were in kindergarten. It was just a couple years ago. Listen to how far you've come with your speech, Eli. He's like, yeah, I sound so different now. And it's just like, oh... No, my heart hurts because you would have been, he would have been put like in one of these places. Or even if uh, we were saying before we start recording, like there's one guy in the documentary who just has cerebral palsy. Like he, it's a muscular issue. His brain is perfectly fine. They put him in a crib and he stayed there for ages. Like Mm -hmm. he didn't even know how long. He just said it was a long time. Mm. And he would be in his own feces because they wouldn't like let him get to go to the bathroom. Yeah. But that's also a thing of with, those people, according to the people that run the asylum and the government, what are you going to do with them? They've been brought here because they have a quote-unquote problem, and mm-hmm. we need to fix them. And if we can't fix them, we can't send them out into the world. And it's one of those things that even though today we can look at someone and say, you freaking idiot, there's nothing wrong, mm-hmm. because they were brought there for a reason, they have to be fixed. Yeah, And that's stuff that you still see. Well, I feel like we're getting better, though, because if you think about it, we have IEPs, you know, Mm -hmm. and at our school, and I think it's every school that should be this way, you should not be copying and pasting, you know, what the kids need to be successful in your classroom. We call it these things called SDIs, so Special Design Instruction, um, and their support services. And every kid is unique, so therefore you need to look at it as a point-by-point basis. What goals should this person have or goals plural they need more than one what do they need for their sdis to be successful and you should not be copying and pasting it and guess what those kids get to be successful because you've now taught them the skills necessary but to go back to penhurst but weird new jersey actually mentions what happened to them so penhurst by the 1960s had been open for 50 years it housed over 2,000 patients almost 3,000 most of them were children as ray and Laura mentioned um, which is about 900 more than they were supposed to have comfortably in those buildings. So mm-hmm. they're about 1,000 over. But what's important, because back to you, Dan, only 200 of those residents were in any kind of art education or recreation programs that would help them to improve their condition, though many of the patients were high-functioning enough to improve with the right care. The administrators interviewed in this program recognized that they were falling short of their ideal treatment, but with a crumbling building, a budget shortfall of $4 million, and only nine medical doctors and 11 teachers, none of them with special ed training, their hands were tied. And so you have all of these children who could be taught to live successful lives mm-hmm. withering away mm-hmm. and being strapped in cages, or like I should say cribs, because they're metal right. cages, they're cribs. Yeah, and they even showed a picture of like easily a six-year-old with some kind of muscular disorder in a crib. Because, you know, they couldn't roll out of the bed then or anything. and But, you know, these are not babies in cribs or anything. But there were babies there, too. When, right. Well, there were babies there from six months on. And yeah. they never learned to crawl. So therefore, they never learned to walk. And so their muscles literally atrophied. They just laid there in these cribs. And they were tied down because they started becoming problems. They would hurt themselves. I actually have an example here from one of the articles that Ray found. Mm-hmm. So... 
I'd like to just start off with saying, keep in mind that I did the math. So 30 days times 24 hours is 720 hours in a month. Okay. So it says here, an extreme example of physical restraints is a female resident who during the month of June 1976 was in a physical restraint for 651 hours. Mm -hmm. In the month of August, she was in physical restraints for 720 hours. That's the entire month. month. The entire month. And it says that this resident was so extremely self-destructive, she totally blinded herself. But when she was later enrolled in occupational therapy... Her programming was so successful, she was now able to be out of restraints for as much as four hours per day. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're citing the court case there. So that actually comes from the Halderman versus Penhurst, which I'm going to get to later. Yeah, I have a whole section about that. But that's (laughs) it's it's so it's so illustrative of these. That's just one person. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the Penn Asylum um, is a website. It's the Penhurst Asylum Civil War Ghosts. Uh, They actually go over a little bit of what happened to these um, these uh, clients that were there. I'm using the word clients, but, you know, these slaves really they were tied in there kept there horribly but it says medical experimentation cruel and unusual punishments and threats to the physical and mental well-being of the residents were part of Penhurst's daily culture and then of course we have the famous quote here one newspaper at the time even called Penhurst the shame of Pennsylvania and so uh, the reason why Penhurst would in any way be haunted now is because of all the negative energy just in that place Uh, beatings were not uncommon they had um, staff that were fired who were um, or put on they were suspended for a while because they were slapping and beating the clients there. You have stories of, you know, the unusual punishments where they would take um, one of the criminals who were being bad and bullying others and they put them in a lower functioning ward and leave them there for a few weeks because now you're stuck with, you know, these people that no one wants to hang out with, like the autistics who aren't talking but might hit you um, because they're nonverbal. And then when you come back to the high functioning ward, you're made fun of, oh, I heard you went to a ward, whatever, you're a dummy. And so you had this like inner society of hatred and again, that, that pecking order of who were the better of these special needs people. Um, so that was just one unusual punishment. But I'm sure you read the story about people who were injected with painful injections, yes? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Dr. Jesse G. Fear, and I'm not joking, his last name was Fear, um, he was actually quoted during the, um, the uh, Suffer the Little Children about different uh, punishments he would use, but he enjoyed torturing those um, who were the bullies. And he had one famous story about how he gave um, one of the most painful injections that didn't cause lasting damage to one of the bullies. And he had asked, like, what can I give this guy that will really, really hurt him? but won't cause any lasting damage. All right, I want that. And he gave it to this kid because he was being a bully. Like, that's just one example of what's happening in this place. And you also have this around the government that is currently, you know, doing experiments, even in schools, public schools, where they put these poor children in, you know, breakfast clubs, and then they would give them radioactive oatmeal Mm -hmm. and breakfast club to see how it would affect them, which you learn in Psych 101. So you have this just this long-standing like 200 year belief that they deserve this and it's happening well past the 1940s when we were you know liberating camps for crying out loud you know and we were disgusted by what's happening in those those camps but it was happening here in pennsylvania right but what see 
in that mindset, you also have to think of when we were liberating those camps, that was common people who were put in because they were deemed inferior by an entire religion. Yeah. Just by religion or belief uh, done by an entire government. Whereas this was, we're trying to help, you know, all in quotations, by the way, (laughs) um, lesser beings. Yeah. Uh, So it doesn't make it any better, but that's the kind of mindset that we're looking at with the two that uh, pervasive extremes. mindset yeah well i mean and historically you know and there've been studies done you think about the blue-eyed brown-eyed study with little kids oh, or yeah. the college yeah. professor I, who had like I a so fake concentration camp i mean that these people who like act as guards or whatever or who are told they're superior in some way really almost all of them all of us i really should say immediately fall into that well and it's it goes almost beyond culture, too, because it's been part of humanity forever. Mm-hmm. Like, you go back to ancient Sparta, where mm-hmm. if someone just, if a baby just looked weird, you know, they would leave it out and yeah. uh, out in the wild. and Let it die. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, like, this is not a new concept or anything. This is... This has been part of humanity for ages, well, and, and centuries. It makes a really good conversation then when you're looking at, you're, you're a novelist, obviously, Laura, and you have your masters and all that, but I'm sure you spend a lot of time on dystopian literature. Oh, yeah. When you do dystopian literature and you do it right, you are focusing on the the issues you currently have in society and you're critiquing about making a worst case scenario in the futuristic kind of world. That makes the best dystopian literature. We just, it's amazing how my my class always connects somehow to the podcast every week. I just introduced dystopian literature because we're going to go into The Giver. And so we were discussing the idea of what is a dystopia and why are we, why, why does it matter? This right here is why it matters. Right. You know, because you can live this in the future. You're going to see this again and again. And you see it in your past. You had mentioned, you know, looking at cookbooks, right, as like part of your master's degree, which is kind of funny and adorable. Mm -hmm. But it's true. We have this ability as humans to conceptualize in a way that no other species can to the point where we can be making fancy eggs benedict breakfasts, you know, and pancakes and full breakfasts. We can do that because we can conceptualize. But because we can conceptualize, we can also see a pecking order. Even inside an insane asylum, we can see where the best wards are and where the worst ones are, you know. And we can see the good nurses versus the bad nurses. We know where to be, where to be safe, and where not to be, where we're going to get hurt. It's amazing how we can conceptualize that because, and how we can hurt others because no one's going to care. And that's where my next discussion is going. We already have those cruel and unusual punishments, and we have the government allowing it and, you know, doing testing just in public schools. There's more that's horrible that happens in, you know, Penhurst. Well, the one thing that I would like to say is, um, to your point, the fear of if we don't remember this, we're doomed to kind of repeat it in the future, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when I was doing my own research, um, obviously there's the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance, and I Mm -hmm. couldn't help but think, like, how can you exist to memorialize something so heinous? But that's really the point, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Like to keep it from happening again. But if you watch the Penhurst movie, um, a lady whose daughter spent a lot of time in Penhurst and again was in one of the better wars and so she only has good things to say. She said that a lot of states were down to zero institutions. They're now bringing them back. Hmm. So we're going right back to where we left in the 80s. 
Isn't that kind of horrifying to think about that, that they're coming back? <laughs> and on that note. Well, also, uh, the, there's the whole cultural, like, um, what's the word? Uh, prejudice. Not prejudice, but cultural like belief and connotation around asylums too. Stereotypes. Stereotype of, you know, like uh, House on Haunted Hill and wait, um, wait, which one? <laughs> either of the movies. They're both abandoned, insane asylums okay, that are converted into homes. That's true. Uh, well, there's, I mean, kind of. Anyway, there's a board game called Time Stories, and the first place you visit is an insane asylum. Uh, right. There are all these places, board games based on H.P. Lovecraft, which, again, that's a product of its era, and we're right. just kind of mimicking his stories. But the keeping that idea alive of these being horrible places and everything, because they were, but it also puts this connotation on the people who need mental health. and Right, the people that, that have to go they, to them. Yeah, that they are lesser because they're in these terrible places and everything. Right, yeah. And it's just this part of culture now. Whenever there's a haunted house movie, it's almost always related to an insane asylum in some way. Yeah, either it was one or there was one down the street uh, or it sounds like a lot. I mean, a lot of the, the horror stories that you hear from it, and of course that's what most people are going to focus on, are the, the atrocities and the horror stories. A lot of it does sound like stuff that you'd hear out of H.P. Lovecraft when it comes mm-hmm. to the Arkham Asylum, not to be confused with the DC Comics Arkham Asylum. Which is based off... It's Arkham. based off of that Arkham. That's where they got the name, thanks to Neil O'Neill. But that's that that's that concept where, like you said, you've got that into the zeitgeist now, mm-hmm. and you have that into the pervasive consciousness of society. But also, it's just incredible to think how much of that horror comes in from that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you know how all the much, abuse that happened. How much? How much the abuse and the uh, injustices bleed over into the macabre and yeah. the things mm-hmm. that you just were made for entertainment. It makes you wonder how much life imitated art, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I think a lot of that would come from the fact that you would pick up the paper, you would hear this story, and you'd go, "Holy crap, that's awful!" Get me my typewriter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. You know, and then, of course, down the line, someone would go, hey, I read this book written so long ago. Let's do it again type of deal. And you do have those weird for sure people that like to do that. Yeah. But anyway, I think we should take a break from this before we get into the really hard stuff. And we do creepy thoughts with Kyle. Now, last week you joined us and we discussed Robert the Doll. Here are Kyle's creepy thoughts on that. I thought it would be a good idea if we turned Shannon some the the girl. I thought it would be be a good idea if we I thought I thought it would be a good idea I thought I thought it would be a good idea good idea to the the girl from Ringu. This is bad. This is really bad. It's Amuija. We need a little bit of happy. We need a little levity. So the uncanny valley. my take on the uncanny valley uh, skews, of course, to in the creepy. So, as opposed to any of the psychological kind of rationale, um, I I'm in favor of something a little darker. I think it's uh, it's kind of cool. It's not exactly scientific per se, but it's kind of cool to take the 
the pathogen thing, like, oh, you see something that looks like either diseased or dying or dead, take that a step, a step further. Like if we're like coded to like see that stuff, what if humans are coded either through like a genetic evolutionary instinct or via the idea of the collective unconscious to react with anywhere from discomfort to downright terror when faced with something that is a simulacrum of humanity. Meaning, what if, hypothetically, in our distant past, humans were forced to develop an instinct, a radar, to detect creatures that on the surface were attempting to appear human, but were very much not human. Like, what if humans, what if cavemen, Cro-Magnon men, Neanderthals, whatever, were somehow evolutionarily programmed to, like, you know, they're out foraging, they're out looking for animals to hunt, and they are approached by a humanoid being, something that looks like them. You know, a bunch of Cro-Magnons approached by a Cro-Magnon that looks like them, and yet something about it just isn't right. And they can tell, just instinctually, they can tell. It sets off something in them to run, to flee, because that is not human. That is not one of us, even though it is trying to look like it is. That, to me, rates a 10 on the Oogie Boogie scale. What are your thoughts, Lauren Ray? Well, really quickly, I think simulacrum is a great, very specific word. Yeah, it is I'm a good word. Gonna, yeah. I haven't seen that word in a couple of yeah. years. Like, since, like, my SATs. <laughs> yeah, right? It's a good word. I don't remember that on my SATs. But I think he's right. Like, we did learn this eons ago. I mean, we have had germs and, you know, pathogens since the dawn of time. So I don't know if there was, like an ergot poisoning issue or a uh, the last of us issue where some kind of fungus is taking over human bodies and making the first zombies back when dinosaurs walked the earth. But I could see like this being part of our DNA, of course. What do you think, Laura? Well, there's a term and you know, like, so we, we talk a lot about supernatural, but there's, I think the term is ultra natural, right? Where it's, you know, like it's so embedded in nature or it's that it's actually beyond our comprehension. Mm. Hmm. So, Ray, what did that you think pro- about that? Essentially, like there's something genetic in us to to fear. Right. Mm-hmm. When you get right down to it, that is that is a lot to process, to be completely honest. Well, I I think you just I need like a moment to reflect on it. That's kind of like why I felt compelled to like read his words myself. Yeah. Uh well, it's just a survival instinct, just like anything else. Do you think it comes from but, hunter-gathering times, like when we lived in certain communities and we all looked the same in our little groups, and oh, so yeah, we're big outsiders? It could be that. Definitely, and it, it's it's something that helped us survive. That's not a trait that's going to disappear anytime mm-hmm. soon. That's something it's that a new genetic code. Yeah, it, you're you are literally hardwired to have that instinct in you. That's why everybody's always 
uh, especially as kids, when you see somebody that looks different, somebody from a different culture, you have you wonder and you ask questions and you Tori, know you have, things. How long have you lived here? Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, but that's but why I you think... get that stuff because that's something that we've never grown out of. It. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived as a species, as as you know us today. Mm-hmm. What are you saying, so, Ray? Well, but if Doctor we... Ray has some thoughts. I by the mean, way, I how long have you lived here? By the way, Doctor Ray. Here, a long here? time. <laughs> Too long. No. <laughs> but there are other implications. Yes, survival. But like when it's not, when it's f- not founded or not grounded in something logical, like this could be like the uh, the foundation for things like racism, for mm-hmm. example, yeah, xenophobia, right. for xenophobia. Right. You know, and what? so that's kind of that's kind of like where my mind kind of. Kind well, I think from what towards... Dan's saying, from an evolutionary standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, that's where it starts from. Especially mm-hmm. when you think of xenophobia and all of that kind of stuff, it all stems from you're an outsider. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what kind of things are on you, where you come from. I don't know what kind of germs are there. I don't know what you could bring over to yeah, me. Yeah, like smallpox to the Native Americans. Exactly, and that's something that, as a tribe, um, usually small-ish population-wise, couple, yeah. couple hundred if you're lucky. That's the kind of stuff you have to keep, uh, you know, looking out for or else everything that you know is gone. And I think that ties in, you know, really well with what we're talking about here because you ask yourself, how could this happen for so long at Penhurst? But as I mentioned last week in our episode, that uncanny feeling happens with some people. Again, they can't be effective educators because they cannot get past the way some students act. You know, if if you have a nonverbal student – you might not know how to handle that. That was PJ's first day at one of our other jobs. I'm not going to mention any school districts, but it was your first day of school at this place. And in comes the principal with a nonverbal autistic girl. The parents just dropped her off at the school. This girl, of course, can't verbalize where she's supposed to be or what's happening. Yeah, Remember I that? I forgot about that. I didn't. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. And you could tell that the principal was very, very uncomfortable with yeah. this student. The principal's like, just like, can she hang out here for a little bit? I'm like, sure. <laughs> like, come on in. And he's like, <laughs> see if you can get her name and like where she's supposed to be. And PJ's like, um, She's nonverbal. I can tell you right now, she's nonverbal autistic. I'm not going to get much out of her, but she can pace around here and calm down because she's obviously agitated. She's upset right now because this is an unusual environment. So yeah. PJ has the compassion and the empathy to work with these kinds of kids. He did not. Yeah. No surprise. He's no longer a principal. <laughs> but like that's an example. And so when you walk into a place like Penhurst and you see all these people who have varying disabilities and issues, maybe you are empathetic. And helpful, like the nurses were, the ones in the video, they talk how much they love their job and how they worked really hard. But then you have the others who go, you're not human. You're not really us. You're not part of us. I don't care what happens to you. You can sit in your poop for a couple of days, whatever. And so I think that showcases that dichotomy of humanity that, that Kyle kind of references. You have that weird, yeah. like, get away from me because there's something wrong with you versus I want to help you. Yeah. Oh. I got from Kyle's thoughts um, two things stuck out for me. One, the whole evolutionary thing. Because I remember reading somewhere – that like snipers a lot of the times will mess with their silhouette so they don't look human. Like they'll take shoulder pads and they won't put them on their shoulders. They'll put them like on their biceps. Right. So they stick out in so weird places so the they whole, don't have that silhouette. Right. So the whole thing about that is to break up the natural geometry that the exactly. eye is looking for. Because we're trained to look for that human shape. And when it doesn't look like that. Not just the human shape, but your eye is trained to look for 
things that are not natural. We're trained to look for something that's completely straight. Mm-hmm. So a gun barrel. We're supposed to look for things that are completely circular. We're supposed to look for things that give you that, yeah, like the human shape. So when your eye catches something that's not in a regular form that's very asymmetrical, your mind glosses over it because, ah, that's natural. That's supposed to be It's just some geometry from the land. Like, oh, look at that. That's just a shadow from a tree or something. That's a hill or a bush, whatever. Let's go look for something else. And that's that's Well, now you just gave away all the snipers' greatest kept secrets, PJ. (laughs) Oh, come on. Some sniper's out in the field. He throws his headphones out. God, come on. (laughs) Uh, um, I used to like this podcast, but now I don't. (laughs) No, but they gave away my secrets. I'm done. I'm going to quit. So we have to go find Wellhouse Exorcism, this person named PJ. But the other thing that um, I thought of was just a week ago or so, I read this article. Uh, It was an op-ed from someone saying that horror movies need to stop attacking people with physical deformities. I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm like, oh, hold on now. So I clicked on it, and uh, and this person has um, not giantism, but a lot of the similar symptoms of giantism where it's like elongated arms and legs. Oh, no, yeah. and, That's what you know, um, Abraham Lincoln had. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forget the term of it at the moment or, and you know, so like it messed with their silhouette uh, and because, and because of it, they see themselves a lot in horror tropes. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like, to me as a horror fan, I never even thought of it as attacking people with physical disabilities. It's just, something that's against the norm you know and because it's against the norm people react negatively and that actually comes from like the 1840s again we already had the institutional idea here in america but 1830s and 40s poe is using the grotesque and that's what Mm -hmm. it's called the grotesque and the macabre and he's using that and usually the physical deformity is symbolic of something else and so again you have this pervasive belief this stereotype that anyone who has a deformity is lesser than you and they're worse. Than yeah, you. right. And but, every one of his bad characters has something wrong with them. We're, we're, that that just doesn't stem from Poe. I mean, no, but I'm uh, saying that's like he was one of the famous writers that well, used it. Yeah, but I mean, take a look at Shakespeare. Oh, uh, no. One of your biggest villains of Shakespeare, of course, is one of my favorite uh, characters. Is Richard the Third. Now, Richard the Third, he had scoliosis historically. Yes, mm-hmm. he did, but his curve wasn't as bad as he portrayed it in. Uh, you know, in the play, Richard III. So everybody that's portrayed the character is a hunchback. Shakespeare is a plagiarist. Can we just move on? Who wasn't back then? <laughs> who English teacher today? who hates Shakespeare right here. <clears throat> you know what? I'm not even going to give my thoughts on that. But you're right, though. The carnival <laughs> sideshow I'm been... Christopher Marlowe all the way. Funny. Any yeah, comments you know on what? that? Yeah, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go Dan there. Dan acted in Shakespeare. But yeah, I think that the, the carnival sideshow idea has been around for as long as probably humanity's been around, yeah. basically, you know, that if, if you could make oh, yeah. money off of... Oh, yeah. Scare at the you weirdos. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. There's a whole bunch of songs about that. Getting excited. Oh, There's a really good uh, <laughs> Del Toro movie that just came out about that. Uh, came out about what? Well, was it his Pinocchio? No, but that was incredible. Yeah, the four movies with the really long incredible. Every time he lies. It was incredible. Protuberance. That's the pretty vocabulary. Nightmare Alley oh, is about yeah. like a sideshow and uh, and like just um, the macabre and things like that in the nineteen. 19- it's a noir. Okay, uh, it's really interesting. See, I like that. They need to bring back more your film noir. Yeah. Not, yeah, dark, anyway. really dark. But I do find that whole discussion interesting. That you know that we should stop 
pointing fingers at disabilities and mm. like physical uh, disabilities because you can't help it. You know, it's just it's not, it's unfair. Like you, you're born a certain way. Why can't you just be loved the way that you are? Yeah. So any comments on anything else before I move into the next section, which is the the nitty gritty? Let's go for it. Okay. So I mentioned at the beginning of this that, you know, listener discretion is advised here. Um, we're not going to pull any of the stops. We're going to tell what happened at Penhurst just so we can discuss then, like, is it haunted or not and why. Um, I already mentioned that, you know, it was open for a long time period and it stayed open after the expose that you guys are going to talk about in a couple minutes. But during its time period, Penhurst housed about 11,000 children and adults. 11,000. Okay, that that is an insane amount, number one. Number two, they're not sure how many people died there and are buried in unmarked graves. And a lot of them died because of accidents, and I'll put that in air quotes, you know, um, by the staff or by other clients that were there. There are many stories about, especially overnight, how people would fall and get hurt and they would be found until hours later because you have like one person watching like multiple wards because you have a skeleton staff in the middle of the night. And of course, you have clients who are more physical. And if they're not bound, they will attack and they could really do a lot of serious damage. So the infirmary was always filled with patients who were abused, beaten, bruised. And parents would come to visit their children and find bruises on their kids' bodies and they didn't understand why. And when they would ask, oh, it was just an accident, they fell out, playtime, whatever, and so it was glossed over. But a lot of these people had like over 40 plus injuries in their physical reports when the the court case finally comes about years later. Um, but we mentioned experimentation. You know, we, we talk about the experimentation that happened like, you know, by Dr. Mengele and Auschwitz and that kind of stuff. But um, America was using these people to do experiments. It's because of these institutions that we have modern day electric shock therapy I mentioned before, I have a friend who has had ETS done, or electric shock therapy, sorry, EST done. And um, she will tell you that it really changed her life for the better. She lost some of her permanent memories, but her entire mentality has changed. So we ha are at a good point now with um, health, but it was at a horrible cost. You ask yourself, was this okay? No, it wasn't. There was probably a safer way to experiment. Well, right. I mean, in, in electric shock, I think today is very different than when they were learning oh, that. I, I We have a, a great, great aunt who went through electric shock. And she told um, our mom when she would talk about it, she would very rarely talk about it. But she said that you always knew what day it was you were getting it. She said because they wouldn't give you breakfast. Because you'd vomit it up. And mm -hmm. she said, and people would throw themselves against the walls. It was not a wanted treatment at the time. And you know what? To add to that, um, as I go into more of these punishments that we get, there was an actual belief, and it was in the science textbooks of the time period, that people with disabilities did not suffer pain the same way that we do. So you could give them extra pain because they couldn't feel it. Wow. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, I do think we need to do one more disclaimer for our listeners just to reiterate that what we're, we'll be talking about yeah, will include sexual violence, uh, or sexual assault, violence, um, murder, murder, you know, and all of this will include children. So, you know, these are the trigger warnings for anyone yeah. who is sensitive to those elements. So I started off with electric shock therapy because that's probably the easiest to discuss. Um, but another punishment would be, we're going to go right into it, physical abuse. 
And so these kids were being beaten. There are stories about um, a parent was there visiting their child and they watched um, one of the workers grab a child that wasn't theirs and literally throw it through the room to the next room. And the child landed on all fours and was able to roll and catch itself. But they watched physical throwing like that happening done by the workers tossing their clients. And it wasn't kid to kid. It was... Uh, worker to child and so they would talk about stories of if the kids are bad they would throw them up against the walls kids would break their heads open um there are stories about how they would um put these poor children in um straight jackets and one sad story is in the movie penhurst where this little girl she was put in a straight jacket and she was tripped by another inmate they say fell right on her face and lost all of her front teeth that is not the story that you mentioned, Ray. There was another story. Um, a lot of these people, there was a dentist that was on the grounds. They had 32 different buildings for this place. It was a humongous estate. Um, there was a dentist there, but most times that dentist was just pulling teeth. He wasn't doing anything more than just yanking the teeth out. And so if they broke a tooth, they lost that tooth. And so this poor child then for the rest of her life had no front teeth because she fell on her face because of being in a straight jacket. You already mentioned um, tying people down. That was another form of punishment. If you were bad, they would tie you down and they wouldn't feed you. And they would let you pee and poop over yourself for constantly for days until you learned your lesson. Um, it's no surprise that disease um, was prevalent there. So you had lots of things. One of the inmates, or I shouldn't use, I don't like to use the word inmate, but one of the clients that was there, she said that she had hepatitis A and she had hepatitis B. Scabies was a norm. You just got used to it. And what was um, originally bath time became once a week, you would go into a room and there would be two workers there dressed in, you know, yellow ensembles. They had their hat, they had their gloves, they had the long coat, they had their little uh, booties on. And one person would hold a scrubber, one person would hold a hose, it hose you down, scrub you, hose you down again, and you'd be sent off. And that's, I mean, it was, treat you were treated just like you were, like, in Auschwitz. Because it was faster and easier to wash you that way. Didn't have the people. Yeah. Because they had a skeleton staff. Because they were, and again, they were so overrun with people. What else were you supposed to do? And I don't want to sound biased because I've worked in classrooms where I've had 35 kids and I've only had 30 desks. Like I've been in that situation. So I know how do you meet the needs of each individual kid? The question, you can't. Like you just cannot. There is no effective way to be a teacher at that moment. And so imagine you're one person and you're in charge of 60 people and all of those people have special needs. That, that's rough. That is it's impossible. Rough. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, even if you do have a kind heart and so, want to yeah. make a difference, it's impossible. So I am not condoning it, but that's why some of the nurses said that they hated the expose because they're like, we're the people who are coming in on the weekends to give baths to these people because we didn't agree with what was happening. You have to wonder, though, how much of it's Munchausen's by proxy, you know, like right. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But, right. Um, so moving on from that, you know, daytime was really okay because you had more staff there. So what you were seeing was segregation. You were keeping females away from males because it was safer. And if they were not sterilized, then they could possibly get pregnant. What happened though was overnight, there was a skeleton staff. And so this is where I'm going to say like, turn your podcast off at this point if you don't like hearing terrible things, but the amount of sexual abuse from client to client, not just, you know, worker to client was astronomical. And so we're talking again, this was, they were segregated 
So you had a lot of older boys who would rape the younger boys. And there was one story of this poor child um, who grew up and he was an adult and he actually died. Um, he contracted HIV there because he would say it would just go on all night where he would just be attacked and held down. And that was his norm. All night, every night was what he would suffer. That was just one kid and a ward full of them doing that kind of stuff. Wow. This had to have been at the later part of Penhurst's existence then. Yeah. Well, I mean, wow. and you know, the, it's not like these were all people or, you know, children with disabilities. Some of these people were criminals, criminal adult people who were just housed there. And then on the other uh, side of it, on the female ward side, you did have rapes happening pretty regularly from the actual workers to these poor children and to older women. Uh, the amount of babies born at Penhurst is undocumented. But in the movie, the nurses did say, oh, yeah, a lot of babies are born there. Um, and so what happened to these poor children? They were adopted out or they were kept there because they were they were born with physical or mental handicaps because their their parents gave it to them. And genetically. instead of being called clients or patients, they're called residents. Yep. Um, but the saddest part of this is you now you have these women who are raped and they're giving birth there um, to them, to their children. Um, they were if their baby, I, I'm hoping the baby died. They were put in incinerators. Mm. That was mentioned in the Penhurst movie, and I just For my heart broke. There. Yeah, mm. and I'm just like, okay. Um, I hate to think negatively, but please tell me the baby was dead. Like, cause she never mentions. No, and she didn't want to say it either. She's like, like you was... don't want to meet. I don't want you to make me say it, aren't you? Like she, she didn't want to say it, and so I don't want to do the research because that's just horrifying to me. But again, adoption or kept or incinerated—that's what happened to babies there. We have not come far as <laughs> as no. a yeah, that was society. I mean, this just is the forty sort years of, ago. Yeah, yeah. These are the sorts of things that happen. You know, as, as you mentioned earlier, in ancient Sparta, they'd be exposed on mountaintops to die mm -hmm. if there was a an issue with the child for whatever reason. And doesn't it hurt you to say, "I hope the baby had passed yeah. away"? Like you don't even want to say that, but I couldn't imagine. Well, yeah, the alternative yeah. is mm -hmm. so much worse, burning to death. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? So, like. I mean, just makes me sick to think about it. So you have that happening constantly. And so the nurses said, yes, lots of babies were born. And there actually was a story um, of a client who was being raped and no one stepped in to help her until the rape was over. They let it go on completely until it was over. And then they stepped in mm. to stop. And so, again, what are you seeing on the floor? You know, that's what they call, of course, an award. What are you seeing on a day to day basis? That's during the day, not even at nighttime when these things were happening and people were calling out for help, but um, either because they weren't there or because they were in a different ward or they were ignoring it, no one came to help you. Yeah. It's important to note, though, I hate to say it, but it's still happening today in like nursing homes, mm -hmm. certainly in prisons, you know, and like, but I do think it's important for us to talk about and, you know, to have this on our list of Dunbar <laughs> worries, yeah. at least from time to time. Yeah. So, Ray, you something? No, I was just thinking about, like, the word, like, I don't know what you would call them. I guess you, you refer to them as clients, but even then, more often than not, clients have a choice in the relationship that they have. Well, I think of client as someone who pays 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. A maybe a re- people don't have the choice. They the are closest thing I can there. think of is maybe resident because they all yeah, had to patient. live there. Yeah. Well, inmate is not a wrong term. Yeah. yeah. The word inmate in keeps coming back case. in your mind. Yeah. yeah. They are there unwillingly. And that's actually mentioned in the Penhurst movie because like I was like, which word do I use? And she's like, well, over the years we have we called them different things. And so she went through all the different words they had, they were taught to use because again, you're talking this is decades, and so it goes from like being patients to inmates to clients to whatever. Um, they just kind of kept changing the name right but it didn't really matter um they were there and they were well yeah you gotta there. make it sound good for the public. isn't that yeah. kind of like a telltale sign that something is wrong Fishy? though yeah yeah, yeah. when you, you start to change like how you identify mm-hmm. those people now um the rapes tended to happen in the more um the not high functioning areas of course because the high functioning disabled would be more verbal about what's happening to their and they would tell their parents and whatnot um but that leads me into the next part that the supreme court had issues with um the high functioning um disabled were given jobs which sounds great because you're teaching them how to to do something to make themselves you know more profitable more marketable if they were to ever leave this because it's supposed to be an asylum you're supposed to leave one day not be a resident forever, obviously. Um, so if you watch the movies or if you listen to survivors uh, or people who used to live there, I don't want to use the word survivor, but survivors of Penhurst, the, a lot of them will say, I miss it. I miss being there because people got me. They understood me there. And I had a job there. But the Supreme Court had an issue with it. They actually said they called it a forced labor system, which um, the Supreme Court would label involuntary servile labor akin to slavery. Because and they'll tell you, like, if you if you talk to these people, we would get up at 630 in the morning and we'd start working and we'd work until like 630 at night. At least we worked all day. And the one lady that they were interviewing there, one of her, her one of her jobs was to clean and prepare the dead for the morgue. That's what she did. And so she would talk about that and how she watched a person die in front of her because of abuse. Like the person like fell and cracked their head and bled all over and died. And then once the bleeding had stopped and she was definitely dead. It was her job to clean that body and take it down to the morgue. And so you then you ask yourself, where did the bodies go? There are a lot of unmarked graves on Penhurst. Um, incinerated, of course, would be the most logical way to get rid of mass amounts of bodies. But 11,000 children and adults went through Penhurst, and we don't know how many of them actually died there. So there, the cap they there some someone said like two thirds of them died. We don't know if that's true, and I don't. I hope that's not the right number, but there is no documentation, which to me is again horrifying, because if there's untold babies being born and we are incinerating babies for crying out loud, who knows? And this is all the de, you know to put air quotes degenerates of our society. There, nobody. A lot of people don't care what happens to them. I think the worst thing is you know when you said it, nobody knows. Somebody knows. There is That's paperwork yeah. on every single person who came in and out there. I mean, taxes alone, you'd have oh, those yeah. numbers. It's just not public. Yeah. No, it won't be public for no. a long time. Maybe not ever. Which is what makes me so sick that they do like the uh, the Penhurst, you know, Halloween, Halloween special. Yeah, they commercialize the tragedy. Yeah. You're like you're walking still, around on yeah. dead bodies. Like it's you a don't, graveyard. No, you're not doing that down at Auschwitz. You're not like let's do on the Halloween tour of Auschwitz. No one's doing that. You know what I mean? Like that was when we did that well, that yeah, live but, video footage you, that you paid for. Thank you, by the way. It was wonderful. I still appreciate that. Like they said, like they take it seriously because, you know, they're, you're walking on, on sacred ground. Yeah. There's like yeah. all those ashes. I just don't know. And I, it is terrible. I wonder like what the, you know, the preservation society, I wonder what the museum, because there is a museum on site, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. It's the 
third, one of three uh, museums dedicated to the history of disability. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can't imagine that. I mean, I would stand out there with like you know signs, pick it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally picket it. Well, you you're know? not the only one because there are a lot of people that that are against it. I did read up on it, and uh, the one thing that I will say that uh, I am thankful for is it is a brief walk. You go into one section of the building, you go downstairs, you walk to the end, and you're done. And they don't try to make it more macabre than what it already is. It's I think without having taken it, just listening to what people are saying and how it's set up, they tried to make it as respectful as possible, but still trying to profit off of something that shouldn't be profitable. So there's one side where you go, oh, you shouldn't do that. And the other side going, you're going to do whatever you want anyway. So at least try and be like decent about it. But it is something that's interesting that I would like to take a look at uh, just to see. I don't know if my heart can take it. Well, you know, and it there are two things I think that that are coming to mind about this topic too. I mean, for one, like we're talking about it right now, but hopefully it's, you know, for educational purposes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and to help bring light to it. But then the other thing that's on my mind, you know, for this for, you know, for these Halloween kind of expeditions, you know, it it's a money maker. It is. Well, and yeah. it's oh. sort of like the question is, you know, does the end justify the means? And by right. generating this money to help continue the story and and continue to bring awareness, so hopefully this never happens again, is that worth it? But is that the purpose? I can tell I you right know. now that yeah. um, it's privately owned, mm-hmm. so yes, I don't know private. if it's actually going to help anybody. We'll have to research that. We but should. It, it's, but at least Hillview Manor, like, you pay, you have a tour guide, you get to go in certain areas. They, they are trying to preserve the history of it. And their website kind of showcases that when you go on the um penhurst is not no <laughs> when you go on their website it is really i don't want to i don't want to say cartoony but it's really garish like they they know they have a niche well it's a haunted house it's, yeah, there are actors stuff. and props and makeup and it's a it's a haunted house that you walk through right but the it's only not the whole thing thank god it's only a section it's several sections. Oh, is it several sections? Yeah, you can't do all of them one. in one night. Um, oh, I didn't know they opened the whole thing. I thought it was just one section. Well, there's 32 buildings. Done. There's only certain places that you can. Yeah, there. Are, I, I think there are six events or something like that. And so, oh. like, you literally oh. don't have enough time in one night to hit them all up. Uh, but are the only part you're hitting them up for cash. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the only part that's re real, quote unquote. We'll pass judgment on that later. You know, when we talk about the paranormal parts, but is um. The Mayflower building, because there are no actors, there are no props. They just give you a flashlight and they put you in the building and they're like, see if something happens to you. And, you know, like, go on in. And, <laughs> so, and uh, you're given like a path to walk through. Like, you start on the ground floor, you go up a set of stairs, go down a hallway, and, you know, you get to peek in the rooms and stuff like that. And uh, you can linger there for a little bit until the next group catches up to you. And then you go down another stairwell, you drop your flashlight off, and you're out. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so that's the only time that you aren't with actors and, you know, the the people jumping in your face and trying to scare you and things like that. Right. But if you go with me, you're always with an actor. <sighs> Can't deny that. Bad actor. <laughs> Anywho, back to... No, in good faith. In good faith. <laughs> so, <laughs> moving on. 
Um, so the whole slavery conversation from Supreme Court, like you understand where they're coming from with the idea of like, you know, you're making them do work and not paying them for it. But if you talked to the residents who had those jobs, they liked it because they felt like they were like a part of something. So again, I want to do this in an unbiased format. We have life skills classes now in public schools where we teach kids how to, you know, manage money to the best of their ability, how to wash laundry, ways to be self-sufficient so they can live somewhat of a normal life. That didn't exist really in the 60s, but these kids were given jobs. And so sure, some of them were negative where you're washing bodies for burial, but you also had ones where they would help take care of the worse off patients. So they would be sent in to help out with like the autistic, the nonverbals, or they would be sent in to like do some cleaning or to do bedding or to help in the kitchen. And so they were happy because they had jobs and they had something that they could do. Um, so I do want to point to that, like with the preservepenhurst.org website, they do showcase that. It says, um, this was especially true for the individuals who made up the, quote, working patient group. Day in and day out, they proved their worth, helping to care for the worst off peers by assisting the paid staff in nearly every aspect of life at Pennhurst. And so they didn't get paid for it, which I think is wrong. They were doing a job. You should be paying them for that job. Um, but again, it was nice for them to learn those, like, family skills, those coping mechanisms, those caring skills. But I think for them, like the great thing about it was they were able to help and they got that feeling of like, you know, camaraderie and they felt accepted and that's what they lost and they left Pennhurst. And so even if it was filthy, they were around people who understood their disability and they felt like they, they were known and they were seen. They weren't seen for being a degenerate or being an imbecile or a moron to use all these old fashioned terms. They were seen as being just who they were. And you don't find that acceptance very easily, you know. And so what are you willing to take so you can be accepted, you know. And so I know you have a story then of someone who lived a, quote, good life there. Yeah. So this is from the book Ghosts of Mayflower, um, which we'll get into more in part two uh, next week. But uh, it's a book written by one of the tour guides at Pennhurst, and she worked there in 2011. Um and uh, she had to drive home a a woman who was there, like, just to see the, the haunted house and everything. And uh, as she's driving her home, she learns that she was a resident there. And so uh, she says, was it as bad as everyone says? I asked. Not for me, she replied. People over-exaggerate. How old were you when you lived there? I was taken to Penhurst when I was eight, Martha replied. I lived there until I was 24. Wow. Okay. Whew. That's a long time, I replied. I couldn't imagine what it was must uh, what it would have been like to leave my family. So you liked living at Penhurst? Yes, I lived with a bunch of other girls in one of the cottages, Martha replied. Yes, there were rules. We needed, but we needed rules. Some of the girls would bang their heads. I did too. Sometimes I bit myself. When some of the girls' parents came in to visit and saw bruises, they would accuse the staff of abuse, but I knew that the girls did it to themselves. I was always honest with my parents, and I told them what I did. The cottages separated the boys from the girls, who were intended for residents who required minimal supervision and were more self-sufficient. I wasn't sure what to make of what Martha said. I was glad she had a good childhood. She seemed sure of what she was saying, leaving me with more questions than answers. Where do you live now? I asked. I have an apartment by myself, Martha replied. Pride filled her voice. I take care of myself. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so she probably was, you know, she probably is high functioning. And so she learned skills that were helpful, you know, in the future. But in the, the Penhurst movie, one of the original residents said, you know, no one taught me anything there. They just, they, they closed on Penhurst and they just shipped us out. And she's like, so I never learned how to take care of a banking account. I never taxes. learned what taxes were or mm-hmm. what it is to pay rent. She's like, I teach it all to myself. And so, again, if you were of, a, you know, a higher level of your disability, it's it would be easier for you to pick up on those things or to get help. I just imagine the poor people who were, you know, you know, quote unquote, shipped off and Lord knows what happened to them. But, you know, there were other things that happened at Penhurst. You know, the biggest thing was the use of drugs as a way to calm down um, the more nonverbal and the more pain eliciting uh, handicapped people. And so a lot of. I don't even want to try to pronounce the different uh, drugs, but they were be giving. A, there was a joke, then it became like just a place to get drugs, because everybody was given their drugs every day to keep them quiet and keep them contained. And you see that time and time again in movies nowadays when they're like you know drugging up patients to keep them calm. That or even in concentration camps, yeah. like they experimented right. with fluoride and other chemicals to try to. Pe- uh, make people more docile and mm-hmm. yep. controllable. And so they learned the right amount of, you know, milligrams to give somebody from all these different medications. But the one um, a former resident, she's like, oh, yeah, they used to give me pills, but I'd spit it out in the toilet when they weren't looking. Yeah. So she enjoyed not taking her pills because she didn't like how it made her feel because you were drugged up and whatever. But they said like the medicines that had they had back then, of course, aren't as good as they are now. It would cause you to sit and like rock and like by yourself because you were like lost in your own little world yeah. and they could cause lasting issues. One person um, still flicks her tongue out and she like wipes her head because those are natural issues that come from having like neurotransmitter issues from this medicine she was given. It messed up the psychology of her brain. Um, so you think like all this medical experimentation just in terms of drugs, while it was meant to calm you down and to calm the more violent people down, it gave you lasting issues. So you can't negate the fact that we were doing experimentation in terms of drugs in there too, legally, which is horrifying. Um, Of course, and the final thing I want to talk about in terms of abuse before we discuss the expose was just the level of filth in there because originally it was fine and then it wasn't. And so, Laura, you have a quote. It wasn't from Penhurst, but it's a really good example of what it was like there, especially near the later years. Um, you know, you have these people who can't get baths. I had mentioned scrub downs. It used to be nice tubbies and then it became scrub downs like once a week or less. And of course, and you're being tied down into a metal crib and uh, you're forced to poop and pee on yourself. There are stories, too, of people who were, you know, pooping and they didn't understand what excrement was. And they would put it between pieces of bread and make themselves sandwiches to eat. And so they're eating feces, too, because they're not being taught how to manage their bodily functions. So Ray, who absolutely hates, you know, dirty things, I'm sure this is really making feel good over there, Dr. Ray. <laughs> but um, so I, I know you had. <laughs> yeah. Let's do to watch Braveheart. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so hard pass. Again, this is from the novel. Yes. It's a, not a novel. This is a true story. So, yeah, just a little bit of background on it. This is a, a book. It's called Ten Days in a Madhouse by Nellie Bly, who was an American investigative reporter. And uh, this occurred in 1887. And this was at Blackwell Asylum. So this is not at Penhurst. But um, there are a lot of things that I'm sure probably happened at 
every asylum, you know. And this, well, and it paints a picture of what it, was happening. It really does. And this she, this was all firsthand. Um, she worked with her newspaper to um, to be admitted undercover into this asylum to see what it was really like. And so when she talks about bathing day, now granted this was 1887, so this is well before um, the the dealings of Penhurst. But the quote is, on bathing day, the tub is filled with water and the patients are washed one after the other without a change of water. This is done until the water is really thick. Then it is allowed to run out and the tub is refilled without being washed. The same towels are used on all the women, those with eruptions as well as those without. We're watching Ray's face right now. (laughs) Yeah. Are you really letting that sink in, right? <laughs> Precisely what do we mean by eruptions? Oh, we know. It's what open sores, like bed mean. sores. Yeah, yeah, open bed sores. Yeah. I mean, I, I that to me is very illustrative of you know, what that what life would have been like, you know, and that was a, a weekly occurrence for them. Mm-hmm. And so, Shanna, you and I were talking a little bit about this, and I was like, Well, you know, what you were mentioning before about being hosed down, as unpleasant as that is might be better than these filthy tubs. Honestly, I'd take the hose down. Yeah. 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 yeah so I'd still take the hose I would down. I the hose right again. It gets the hose again. I want the hose. <laughs> it's weird to think that uh, that was the evolution of improvement, go yeah. from filthy well, tubs to that. Well, and I mentioned to, to you, too, like, that wasn't uncommon because you would just use the re... re- well, they would heat water. But this was cold water you mentioned before. But you would heat a lot of water for one bath. That's a lot of water you're bubbling right there. And so you would all share the same tub once a week in your family. you get ready for church. And it was oldest to youngest. So yeah. the baby was put in the dirtiest of waters. And then that phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bath water, was like legit. Don't toss the baby out when you toss the water out of the house. And so that was just a part of life. But it didn't really get much better. Uh, but less than 100 years later i guess but i mean i guess i would take the hose but again that's such an inhumane way to wash somebody if you think about it like even in the office you have like um (laughs) dwight invites ange over and like she's supposed to bathe his aunt and he's like a hose and she's like i refuse to use a hose but to give her a proper bath and so you see her like no i'm taking control of this i'm not doing this this is wrong and so, like, it's nice to see, you know, her stand up for what's right. I'd still take the hose. <laughs> <laughs> well, the aunt's just like, oh, I'm ready. And she's like sitting in this chair, like ready to go. Like, no, I'm going to give you a real, an actual bath. Um, so it's unfortunate. This is what was happening, you know, just constantly. Um, so I think that's pretty much all I want to mention in terms of the outright abuse, apart from the the filth, because you had mentioned some stories, too about things that were happening and you had a story you wanted to read as well right pj uh yes you, um, you paraphrase i'll paraphrase because i can't find it in the novel yeah, so, right now yeah we, book. Had, we had mentioned just the outright filth that was there and what you were forced to lay in for days especially near the end when they had less workers and way more people you have poop and pee all over the floors you know it's just uh, on your bed it's just a constant people have diseases you see them putting up fly tape because it's just full of you know bugs in this place it was absolutely disgusting and so there's one story as they were shipping out these residents to other places one penhurst finally got shut down um of just how dirty they were and so go ahead pj take it away yes this is also from ghosts of mayflower and uh so um the author tamara she shared 
uh, she worked on the second floor of the Mayflower building with another woman named Lori. And Lori was an EMT during the 80s. And before that, she was... Oh, so she was an EMT, and then before that, she worked for a local ambulance. And that is when, um, she said, Penhurst was closing. The patients had to be taken out of here. To where? Some were taking to... uh, Some were taken to nursing homes, she said. It was really awful. One particular man had a shirt on that was so dirty, it was stuck to his skin. It was that filthy. When we took him to the nursing home, they wouldn't accept him. We were told to take him to the hospital to make sure he didn't have any infectious diseases and that he needed to be thoroughly washed and checked for lice. When we got this man to the hospital, they couldn't understand why we brought him there. No one wanted him, and I felt so bad for him. And, uh... She went on to say the people were in bad shape. They probably weren't being cared for, cared for. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine your shirt is like stuck to you. Oh, it makes me I'd sick. call that the understatement of the decade. <laughs> and then she said children were being left in the Quaker building with violent residents because that's where a lot of the criminals were kept. And it was right behind the Mayflower building. And uh, and there wasn't enough staff there to protect them. Well, that's another part of it, too. Well, that's fitting for the violent offenders to put them in the Quaker building. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, it's poor children. So, again, that's like... Veronica. So, and I'm glad you mentioned that in a way because that leads into the actual um, expose that happened. Now, you, you guys had already started off by saying Bill Baldini was just a local news anchor on Channel 10 News. You said it was his... First year. First year was a reporter. And I think in the story, didn't he say, like, he had heard about it from a friend and he at first didn't believe it because it just seemed so disgusting and so harrowing. I can't remember. I'm not sure where he said he had heard, excuse me, where he had heard it from. But, yeah, he he didn't believe it um, until he was getting some more tips on it when he decided to go check it out. And you can only imagine what was going through his head. I mean, he's his first, this is his first year. Uh, as a journalist and these kinds of stories, you know, you think Pulitzer Prize winning pieces here. Um, and you get in there and you can only imagine you get in there and suddenly you just go, it's not worth it. That Pulitzer Prize, whatever is not worth it. Just get the story out and try and get this shut down as fast as you humanly can. The thing that's amazing to me and what I don't know is how... Bill actually got access because the things that he tells he and his that team... story in Penhurst, how he he, he there, if you ever watch the movie Penhurst, he goes over that in more detail. Okay, yeah, it I... was almost like a bait and switch, if I remember correctly, where he's like, I want to go in and do you know talk about this, but then when they got in, he's like, oh my, <laughs> and you know he uh, filmed what he really wanted to film, which was the horrors that were going on there, but he used a different excuse to get in. And he also said that like they weren't really against him coming in because in that time period that's what you were supposed to do, and so they were actually when he interviews like the do- the Doctor Fear, that name Doctor Fear. It Dr. sounds Jesse like a comic Fear. book. It does. Like this is like the DC villain. Um, His cousin Doctor Doom. Proud of what he was no, that's doing. That's Marvel. That's yeah, he was. Know? I think you're right. I think I think he was proud of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the. Um, Expose was done in uh, five-minute intervals over five days, and um, 
It is available to see on YouTube, although the quality is quite low. Uh, but basically what you truly do see is the unvarnished truth of what was happening there. You see feet and hands shackled to cribs, uh, adult-sized people sitting in cribs, rocking back and forth, huddled in the fetal, fetal position. Um, the the background, anytime he's interviewing anyone, is very loud. It's mm-hmm. probably very overwhelming, especially to anyone who was autistic and, and there. I oh, mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, just listening to it, I mean, it's hard to even focus on what someone's saying because there's so yeah, there's much so background. Much, so much activity going on. Yes. And um, I think that, you know, there's, there is one quote uh, from uh, one of the patients, a boy. And uh, the interviewer asks what he would like most in the world if he could have anything he wanted. And the reply is to, to get, get out, out of Penhurst. Mm-hmm. That's all that he wanted. Horrifying. You know, it, one of the things, I think it was actually uh, Bill Baldini who said this, uh, that, I, that really did strike me as he says that other, he didn't use the word minority groups, but basically underrepresented groups have people to speak for them. They have mm-hmm. leaders and people making speeches right. and getting it out in front of the public. And he said, no one no one is speaking for these people. And it turns out that it was Bill and his team who yeah. ended up doing yeah. that. Um, one thing that he had actually said during the interview about it afterward, he said, when we started shooting, my crew was mortified. I mean, I had trouble keeping them on the job because they were literally getting sick from what they saw. And it's true. He would lose people left. And it, it was like five minute segments, but they were quitting their They were leaving because they just couldn't take it. It was so hard for them to see this was this was happening under their very noses in Pennsylvania in modern day. And then he said, think of a ward of infants and children from the ages of about six months to five years old. There are 80 of them in metal cages. They had to attend to them every day, all day. These people were literally lying in their own feces for days. Mm. That's what you're seeing as you go in. And so what became what was supposed to be like a five minute, like, you know, um, segment became what, five of them, right? Yeah, it became five, yeah. five minute segments. Um, and so and people like would stay tuned to watch it as it was happening every single time because right. they only, it was just it was so horrifying for them to learn. Well, think about that. Uh, you know, if you're a resident of uh, Philadelphia or even the boroughs of Philadelphia, you've got this thing in your backyard and now you're just learning about it. You may have heard the ghost stories. You may have heard, you know, talk about town. But now you're actually seeing that this is an atrocity going on right in mm-hmm. your backyard. Yeah. And nobody even thought to go and take a look at it until this guy – you know, fresh into his career decides to take it. That's got to be just even watching that had to have been absolutely mortifying. Think about it's what, one thing to see it like happening in a different country, but what's happening like literally what's happening next door in your backyard. Well, yeah. think about this. You know, we have um, so uh, as Americans, we've always been really high on censorship. When it comes to television and film, I mean, come on, you got the Hayes Code that was around until the 19, uh, what, well, uh, 60s, actually, late 50s, early 60s. So you have this cookie cutter, this is how things are. You have maybe war correspondence, of course, that this time it would be in the theaters because you don't have television. But even then, you didn't hear anything about Korea in the 50s 
you're now getting stuff on Vietnam and you're seeing this horrible stuff in Vietnam, but you go, well, that's an entire world away. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing it here and it's uncensored, it's unfiltered, and you're getting it right into your eyes. As little kids watching this, you're probably going to be scared to death. Oh, yeah. Especially to know that it could, it for many people, literally right down the road from you. Well, and in the video, too, you have these parents, they believe that things were going just fine. To see that, they started pulling their own family out of Penhurst. I wouldn't blame them at all yeah. if you're seeing all of the atrocities. Say you've got your kids in school and you think that they're learning all these great things and you find out that this is going on. Yeah. They never once pretty... had any classes. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be like, what? Why Get, are you called what? a state school? <laughs> You know, one of the other things in the the documentary, just talking about, you know, how people were kind of abandoned there. There's this, I mean, I guess man, like, and the way that it's filmed, at least on the version that I saw, like, it doesn't show his full face. It kind of only shows like his nose and eyes. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I assume that's done to protect identities, or it was just edited, you know, you know, for that on YouTube. I don't know, but um, the interviewer is asking him, you know, who who cares about you, and you know, this guy is like, oh, you know, my mom and my dad and my sister and whatever. And and the interviewer says, well, when's the last time you had a visitor? And I mind you, this was happening in the 60s. And the guy said 1940. He hadn't had a visitor in mm-hmm. all that time. And, uh, you know, it, it's That's just. That's more than a lot of people who were there, too. Yeah. A lot right. of them never had a visitor. That probably was when they dropped him off was his visit. Yeah. Yep. Well, actually, okay, bye, kiddo. We love you. We'll see you in like thirty years. In some of the um, references that I was reading, I think maybe it was the PreservePenhurst.org. If you um, gave your child up to this place, you weren't allowed to come back for like at least two weeks, up to two months, so the child could become acclimated. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if it was more like we need to brainwash them and train them to not say things. But I—that's me with supposition at this point because I really don't know why they would wait that long but you weren't allowed to come back for a while and then you could come on visitation days and of course they were all cleaned up and put in nice clothes um but it had to be pretty eye-opening as you said in 1968 to see these people who are like you know rocking in corners hitting their heads off walls they're naked they're mumbling themselves they're all emaciated you see people who could have learned to crawl and walk but because they were tied down or kept in cages they never learned to do any of that it's just horrifying Right. And going back to the why they wouldn't be able to come and visit after such a period of time, it probably would have been acclimation for the child. Mm -hmm. Maybe not brainwashing, but acclimation to this is your new setting. Mm -hmm. You have to get used to everything that's being put in front of you. So when you are used to it, you're not immediately going to go back and say, get me out of here. Yeah. To your mom mm-hmm. and dad, because now this is something that, that you're, homesickness. Right. This is something that's starting to become um, your routine. Normal. normal routine. Yeah. It just right. you. you ha- it, hey, this is where I am. I hope I hope that's what it was. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of where I want to stop, because when the expose came out, when Suffer the Little Children made its debut, the very final episode he got the vice president of the freaking United States. Like, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that just put a huge light on all institutions, but especially Pennhurst. And so where does this go? A lawsuit. 
right? And so we're going to pick up next week with the official lawsuit that you had referenced earlier, Ray and Laura, with one of those stories, but it's Terry Lee Halderman versus Penhurst. And this becomes like the landmark case that's going to um, really change a lot of special education. It definitely changes institutions. It changes laws. Laws are built off of it from the 1970s on. Um, But again, 1968 is when you have that expose come out. It isn't until 1978 that anything really happens with the lawsuit. And then it takes almost another 10 years to shut down Pennhurst, 1987. Three of us were just born. We were not even a year old. The three of us were here, Dan, PJ, and me. And Pennhurst is finally shut down. And so I'm, I just yeah, turned 30. <laughs> I just turned 36. You guys will be 36 soon. Um, and again, we were talking about this earlier. They're bringing institutions back. Mm-hmm. So in less than 40 years, we've done a complete bout face. Well, right. But the thing you have to think about is why are they coming back now? When they were first started, it was a government run thing, whether that be state or federal. And that was to help people today. They're more of privatized institutions. That's what a lot of prisons are uh, privatized and yeah. they make a crap ton of money yeah. and it is it is it is slave labor it is yeah. uh legalized slave labor the, the other thing to consider too is that when a lot of these um asylums and institutions close their doors the families didn't come and pick up their people Right. They just went onto the streets. Yeah. That's a lot of the homeless population. They became vagrants. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, But a lot of the population that you're you're seeing now and probably the people that you're going to see in these institutions are people that uh, couldn't couldn't stay in a home because of rising inflation, because of drug problems. Uh, But a lot of it has to do. And when I was in Los Angeles, I saw that a lot. It wasn't that this person's on the street because they blew all their money on crack. It's because I can't keep up with all my bills and my rent and still have this job that still refuses to pay me a decent wage. Mm-hmm. And what? why are you doing crack? Because I have nothing better to do. I literally can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I stayed one day after going back after the divorce. I walked around. I walked over 10 miles and I went, holy crap, no wonder these people do this stuff. There's literally nothing you can do when you have barely any money in your pocket and you have nowhere to go. Yeah. You're going to sit under that bridge. You're going to do something to pass the time. And when you're time. used to taking medicine um, to counteract all the issues you're having, right? you might want to take some more illegal medicine to try you're, to counteract the issues that you're having. Exactly. You're going to find anything to keep you occupied. You're going to do anything you can. So when you finally come back into reality, you go, hey, it's time to go to sleep. Great. I feel really bad for our listeners who are hoping for just like a scary ghost story this week because this just got really deep. All of it's very deep. Sorry, guys. It's, it's all heavy the background. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a two-parter because next week is going to be um, – we're going to discuss the court case that came from it. And then, of course, the ghostly apparitions that are seen today there. And we'll discuss maybe the haunted attraction that is Penhurst. So that will be the end of it. Yeah. We really have to dig for the paranormal stuff because – I have a whole bunch. They the, – yeah, you have to dig for it though. Like they – it's not reported on nearly as much. It's not reported on, and is I. F- this is me supposing now, and but that they wanted to keep that hush hush, so you learn Stay about away. it there. Right. You, so you learn about when you go there. They don't want that public knowledge, so because then why visit? Right, you know. Oh, you still want to go? I want to read all about the ghosts. And I want to Hillview Manor. I, I mean, want to go. go. I want to go. 
Well, just for the Mayflower building. I just See, I don't want to go to Penn. I just don't want to give them money unless it's I for know. the preserve.org yeah. mm-hmm. because I just don't uh, like the exactly. idea of monetizing on people's suffering. It just makes me sick. Yeah. So. And we'll get into that. Yes. So in any case, thank you guys for being here this week. Same time, same station next week. We'll be here. Sounds good. Wonderful. So you got your homework. You got to find some good ghost stories. I got a whole bunch. Get ready to go on that court case and what kind of came because of it. Ray and I got that. We did enough court case reading for our doctorate. (laughs) Should I show up in my suit? If you would like to. Last time the... Uh, If you could just wear clothes next time, that'd be great. Well, I'll try. Last time I came up in a suit and the judge thought I was a lawyer. Last time Kyle was here, Shanna had issues with that too. Listen. Okay. (laughs) We all know I'm better looking than Kyle. I have a better physique. Okay? No. Not by much, but... He asked me to put my clothes back on. It was a whole joke. My clothes were on the whole time. I'm going to have to dig (laughs) under the table for this next one then. I just can't. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. And we'll see you next week. So, again, come back for part two where we discuss the court case and the haunted, haunted, creepy apparition. The spooky, spooky The spooky, spookies. The oogie boogie meter we're going to talk about, I guess. All right. I'm sorry. I just can't take you seriously. I don't think we can use Jack Osborne's. You're right. What if we say oogie boogie boogie? Oh. Oogie boogie. Oogie boogie boogie. Extra O's. That's totally different. Now I'm just thinking sound, of and we had extra boogie. Stop it. You can't. <laughs> Who wants to go surfing? What about booga booga booga? All right. Now Jogi we're getting into tribal or... stuff, and that gets. What if we flip it around the boogie oogie? Boogie oogie. That Ooh. sounds like you got boogers coming out of your nose. I can't. <laughs> I don't know. All I can think of is Mr. Boogity. 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 Oh, boogity. The boogity scale. The boogity scale. There you go. That's boogity, right. Boogity. Hey, get... wow, look at the time. <laughs> I gotta go <laughs> anywhere. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>